Well, good morning. My name is Scott Cope. I serve as the church planting resident here at Beacon Community Church, and it's great to be together. I'm going to pray for us once more, and then we're going to dive into God's word. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, speak now. We pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would now, even now, give us understanding of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Are there multiple ways to God? Popular opinion insists that no one religion has the truth. Perhaps you've heard the analogy where God is at the top of a mountain and Christians and Buddhists and Muslims and atheists and Jews and, and everyone else, we're, we're all on our own path. We're all on our own journey. Doing the best we can, limited in our insights, but ultimately headed to the same destination. No less popular a figure than Oprah expresses the sentiment when she says, there are millions of ways to be a human being and many paths to what you call God. I am a Christian who believes that there are certainly many more paths to God other than Christianity. Well, what does the Bible say? Is Jesus merely one way to God? Or is there something unique about him? This morning, in part to answer these questions, we continue in our series in the book of Acts. So I'd encourage you to turn to chapter 4 now. We'll be in verses 1 to 31 this morning. Thus far in the book of Acts, we saw Jesus ascend into heaven, victorious, glorified, resurrected in chapter 1. The Holy Spirit descended and came to indwell the church in chapter 2. And then last week in chapter 3, we saw how Peter and John healed a crippled man, which led to the opportunity to testify to the identity of Jesus to the crowds. And it's at the conclusion of that event that we pick up our story this morning in chapter 4. We'll have two sections, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Official opposition to gospel proclamation leads to spirit-produced boldness. Official opposition to gospel proclamation leads to spirit-produced boldness. So read with me Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came up to them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, 
By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed sitting beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them, because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Amen. Well, our first point is found in verses 1 to 22, entitled, An Example of Boldness. All right, we see how, how this week's passage picks up on what we saw last week. Peter and John are, are literally still speaking to the crowds when the religious authorities come over. Uh, you see in verse 2 that they are greatly annoyed. What, what made these people so upset? Well, Luke, the author of Acts, doesn't leave us in doubt. You see it there in verse 2. They became greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. You see, the chief priests and the Sadducees weren't upset about the miracle. Who could object to a crippled man being healed? It wasn't the good deed that set Peter and John at odds with the unbelieving Jewish leaders. Now, what made them greatly annoyed was the apostles preaching. It was the message they bore 
and the Savior they proclaim and the boldness with which they taught the people. Uh, Even as Dane shared last week, we want to be committed to loving kindness, doing good deeds, followed by gospel declaration. And yet we shouldn't be naive so as to think that the world around us will equally appreciate both. They might be quite happy for us to do good deeds. They might become greatly annoyed at gospel declaration. And so they arrest Peter and John in verse 3, but, but not before their message has taken a toll, as it were. You see that in verse 4. Now many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Uh, probably at least 10,000 people. And, you know, I just, I think it's pretty incredible. In uh, chapter 3, Peter and John are right there. They're going up to the temple to pray. No grand ministry plans. They're going at the hour of prayer. No revival on the calendar. And yet they were willing to be interrupted. Peter and John were willing to be inconvenienced, even momentarily, to to show compassion to a loving and hurting man. And God used that good deed to prompt the preaching that saved thousands. Friends, even as we do want to insist on both of these things, we shouldn't underestimate how God might use a good deed for gospel declaration. And so in verses 5 and 6, uh, we see the full council of Jewish rulers come together, the Sanhedrin. They met in the mornings typically, so it's already late. Peter and John are arrested. They're held overnight. And then we come to their confrontation. And we see the nub of the matter in verse 7. What's the heart of their opposition? Verse 7 reads, And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name Did you do this? Then Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, we'll just pause there. You know, what's going on here? Why why are the religious leaders asking this question? Well, certainly they don't exactly know how this miracle occurred. You'll notice it's also really similar to the question they had asked Jesus in Luke chapter 20. Do you remember that these same religious leaders came to Jesus after he had overturned the tables in the temple. And do you remember what they said? By what authority are you doing this? As the religious authorities in Israel, the chief priests and the scribes and the Sanhedrin, well, they wanted to keep it that way. They had a, had a monopoly over the religious marketplace, and they were not so keen on competitors. And, and what does it mean that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you, do you notice that? I thought Peter had already been indwelled with the Spirit in chapter 2. Well, it's true. Here we see a a second filling in some sense. They are already permanently indwelt with the Spirit. Every Christian is on the moment of conversion. That's what Pentecost shows in chapter 2. Here we see the Spirit's work in empowering and emboldening Christian witness. The same words will be used in verse 31 at the end of our passage. This seems to refer to the the Holy Spirit's coming, just as Jesus predicted. When they stand you before courts and Sanhedrins, and you will testify in my name, the Holy Spirit will speak through you. Uh, This is referring to the Holy Spirit's very real power and presence in us when we preach and speak the gospel to our neighbors and friends and co-workers. And, And thus we come to Peter's third recorded sermon so far in the book of Acts. You see in verse, tw- verse 10, 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Here we see that the result of the Holy Spirit's filling is incredible boldness, right? So do you realize that that Peter is accusing the same religious authorities that had just murdered Jesus of that murder? Uh, He's accusing them of standing opposed to God, right? There's Jesus, and you've crucified him, but how does God view Jesus? Well, he vindicates Jesus. He glorifies and exalts and resurrects Jesus. I I think the clear implication is you're standing opposed to God. You have crucified the one God now resurrected. God's on his side, not yours. Put another way, you builders threw Jesus out and tossed him aside as a worthless stone. Uh, You thought there was no way that he was the Christ the Savior of Israel, and so you crucified him, but you were wrong. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 118, Peter says. You notice that? He's quoting to Psalm 118. The stone rejected by the builders has now become the cornerstone. What was once rejected by man has now become the most important thing. For it is by Jesus that this man stands before you healed. Brothers and sisters, we should indeed take notes of Peter's boldness. We should note in particular how Peter doesn't shy away from speaking the truth about these people's sins. Like a good physician, Peter does not hide the uncomfortable truths. He doesn't only speak soothing words, but he lovingly tells it as it is. Christian, do you know that it is a loving thing? to tell your unbelieving friends and neighbors and family the gospel. I know it doesn't always feel that way. They may respond with disinterest, disdain. And yet, we must take care to speak the truth in love. We don't get any sense here that Peter is being disrespectful. We don't get any sense here that he's being harsh or speaking un true words. No, the the principle and the pattern in the example here is speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth, even the hard truths of the gospel, that all of us have participated in the spiritual rebellion that put Jesus on the cross. Right? We are no better than these religious authorities. For all of us in this room, we are all sinners. We all love our personal autonomy. We want to be king. We don't want Jesus to be king. This is all of us in our natural condition, prizing our independence and hating the idea of submitting to King Jesus. And yet, to our friends and family, just as Peter does, we must tell the truth. But it's not all bad news. You see that in verse 12, where Peter ends his speech. Look there. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
Why was Peter so committed to Jesus' name? Why did he preach it and suffer for it? Because there is salvation and no one else. Friends, a simple truth found throughout the pages of the New Testament is that Jesus alone is Savior. You must put your faith in him to be saved from your sins. As our Lord himself says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The Bible doesn't recognize other religions as valid sources for the truth about God. The Lord Jesus does not stand as one path among many, all leading to the same destination. Rather, any spiritual or religious or philosophic system that does not center on Christ and his work on the cross and his resurrection is wrong. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder how that strikes you. Perhaps you feel that that Christians are wrong. It seems arrogant to insist that that they have the truth and that no one else does, not savingly. Yet notice that, that you think that Christians are wrong on this matter. You don't think that our Jesus only insistence is a valid path. You wish Christians were on a more inclusive path. You think ours is the wrong one. And so we see that we all make moral judgments. We all make evaluations of what we think is right or wrong. You and I both do it. The only question is, what do we say is right or wrong? And so, yes, Christianity is is very exclusive in the sense that, that Jesus is the only way to be forgiven of your sins. He's the only way to know God is your father. Oh, but Christianity is also radically inclusive. I wonder if you heard it at the end of that First Timothy passage. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Friends, Jesus alone can stand as mediator between God and men because Jesus alone gave his life as a ransom, as a payment for our sins. And he did this for all. What this means is that the way of salvation is open to all. It's not limited by your religious background or ethnic makeup. It's not limited by your education levels or socioeconomic status. You aren't disqualified based on past sins. The sins you've done or the sins done to you. The Lord Jesus is radically inclusive, offering his salvation to any who will turn. And trust in him. And so friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what are you waiting for? Will you not turn to him and believe upon him? Trust in his work, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and then his glorious resurrection from the dead. He alone is qualified to save. As Peter will say later in chapter 10 of Acts, 
to Christ, all the prophets bear witness, that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. Oh, friend, if you've not trusted in Christ, do so today. Back in Acts chapter 4, Peter wraps up his message we've seen in verse 12, and, and then we see the religious leader's response in verse 13. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And, when they, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I think the ESV study Bible notes it well. Because they knew Jesus, Peter and John knew more than any of the learned teachers. Such is the power of the Holy Spirit as he empowers Peter and John's ministry. And then in verses 14 to 17, the Sanhedrin deliberates on how to react to Peter and John. We read in verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Well, the religious leaders couldn't undo the sign of healing that the apostles had performed. They could try to stop them from proclaiming the name of Jesus. Yet Peter and John's response is instructive. We'll see something similar in chapter 5. But for now, they note that it's better to listen to God, no matter the consequences, than to listen to man, no matter how tempting and easy. Or to use Jesus' own words, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who can cast both soul and body into hell. And so we see on the one hand, Peter and John say that they, they must listen to God's command, right? Uh, Acts 1.8, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So it's a command that God has placed on them that they're not at liberty to disobey. They must obey God. But notice how I think verse 20 hints at this internal motivation that they, that they have. L look there. They say, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. James and P Peter and John are simply saying that their experience of the Lord Jesus and their knowledge of him, it is so compelling, it is so captivating that they cannot stay silent. The, the news is too good. The, the grace is too overflowing. The wrath to come is too severe. The hope of glory is too profound. They, they must speak. And so Beacon Community Church, I, I wonder, is that how you think of evangelism? Yes, we are commanded to share the good news, but, but not only that. I wonder if you find the gospel so compelling in your own life and in your own heart that the natural overflow of that is, is gladly speaking the news to others. With neighbors and coworkers, do you, do you jump at the prospect of sharing about Christ? Do you, do you long for opportunities to share all that Jesus has done in your life? Are you thrilled to share about the grace of God available to all who believe in Jesus? 
You know, when I was in high school, uh, there was an advanced Spanish class where the advanced Spanish students went on a two-week trip to Spain. And so these students went over, and when they returned, those students were insufferable because all they could do was talk about the trip. I mean, you couldn't go near those people without hearing them talk about the, the travel and the food and the architecture and the culture and the art museums. Uh, they couldn't but speak of what they had seen and heard. Now, as Christians, let's try not to be insufferable. Let's not be obnoxious. But I would guess that most of us are prone to the opposite error of speaking too little, of being too timid. Peter and John are a model for us of joyfully urgent evangelism. The apostles are then released from prison in verse 21, and then we come to our second section. How does, does the church respond to this first wave of persecution? Let's look now at verses 23 to 31, entitled, A Prayer for Boldness. Verse 23 says, When Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. All right, let's just pause there. All right, so if, if you get this bad news and this persecution is coming, I know my temptation, right? All right, what senator do we need to call? What political activism do we need to do? This persecution's arising. What strategy do we need to scheme? And yet here the church prays. They turn to God in humble dependence to ask for his help. And so they pray in verse 24. Sovereign Lord. They, they lift their voices together. I love it. The persecution doesn't scatter them. It doesn't fracture their unity. No, it, it seems to almost bring it together. They're even more unified. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Before they turn to, to ask for God's help, the church first confesses and recognizes the God that they're praying to. And it's not a weak or puny God. Why would you pray to that God if you had one? No, he is the sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth see in everything in them. Nothing happens apart from his will and plan. And so now, in light of that God who they're praying to, their prayer is going to get really interesting. What we're going to find is that the believers are going to, they're going to quote Psalm 2, which was written a thousand years prior, and they're going to apply it to their present day scenario. So look at verse 25. Sovereign Lord, who, you who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did, the nation, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
All right, so in Psalm 2, the, the nations of the earth are warring against Yahweh, the Lord, and against the Davidic king. The imagery is one of wicked rebellion against Israel's king by opposing kings and nations and God taking the side of his anointed one. And the church sees three ways, I think, that are, that are noticed here that this psalm is fulfilled in their time. First, Jesus is the Lord's anointed. Uh, do you see that? Verse 27 refers to your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, which is the exact same word found in Psalm 2, in verse 26, when the kings and rulers are against the Lord and against his anointed. All right, so the ESV footnotes has in verse 26, you perhaps see it at the end there, that another way to translate against the Lord and his anointed, you could translate that as against his Christ. So verse 26 would read, the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And then we see that same word in verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you Christ. In, you, you Christ in. It, it's the same word. It, it's the word for Jesus Christ. And the significance of it is huge. But at, at the most basic level, it, it means that Jesus is Israel's king. He is their, their Christ, their anointed one. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic king. We know that Jesus is tied to the Davidic king because of the parallel language used again. In verse 25, we see the reference to our father David, your servant. And then in verse 27, your servant, your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. So Jesus is the new David. He is the new king of Israel. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He wasn't merely a teacher from Nazareth. He was the divinely approved king of Israel as evidenced by his glorious resurrection from the dead. And it's this king that had been rejected. He was the stone tossed out. A, a second way that Psalm 2 is fulfilled is seen in verse 27, where the kings and rulers gather together. Do, do you notice that it's the same word in Psalm 2 and verse 27? Here listed as Herod and Pontius Pilate. The conclusion is simple. The, the kings and the rulers of the earth who, who set themselves against the Lord's Christ are Herod and Pontius Pilate. You know, why does the church name these two individuals? Because they see them, those men, as the fulfillment of the kings and rulers of Psalm 2. They have gathered together against the Lord's Christ, but they didn't oppose Israel's king alone. And here's where the real shocker is. The third fulfillment of Psalm 2 is found at the end of verse 27. The kings and rulers oppose King Jesus, but they're not alone. Psalm 2 began by noting that the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain. Well, who are they in the story of Jesus? We see at the end of verse 27. It is the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. That is, at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the nation of Israel acting like the warring, wicked kings of the earth. Israel plots 
in vain against the Lord. Israel rages against the Lord's anointed. Israel has become the nation. Friends, this is shocking. After a thousand years of waiting for the anointed one, the Davidic king to come. Yet when God's holy servant Jesus came, Israel didn't enthrone their king, King Jesus. They rather crucified him. And what this means, in short, is that ethnic, political Israel is no longer considered to be God's covenant people. Under the new covenant, the people of God is no longer ethnic Israel, but the multi-ethnic church, comprised of all those who trust in Christ. God has rejected Israel because they have rejected their king. And, you know, initially this was like, wow, this is incredible. This must have really taken God by surprise. But no, that's not what we find at all. You see it there in verse 28. In this, the Jewish people had acted, and the Gentiles, and Pontius Pilate, and Herod, they had acted to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Friends, here we see human responsibility alongside divine sovereignty. God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. He makes prophecies a thousand years prior that are fulfilled in Jesus. And yet, humans are still responsible. As Peter has just told the Sanhedrin, they crucified Jesus. This is what Dane said a few weeks ago, right? God's sovereignty doesn't let them off the hook. And if we can't figure out exactly how divine sovereignty and human responsibility fit together, that's okay. Many theologians have tried. It's difficult. But ultimately, the Lord's ways are above our ways. I don't understand quite how both things can be true, but the Bible asserts them both to be true. And so we can take God at his word. Man is responsible and God is sovereign. And it's this dual reality that actually sets up the close of our passage. You must have both of these truths to have verse 29. So look there now. The Christians conclude their prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your slaves to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You know, if man isn't responsible, there's no need to pray. Like, we don't need to do anything because we're not responsible. But they do pray. And if God isn't sovereign, why pray? Because he can't change anything anyways. It's the dual reality that, that we are responsible. So let's pray that God gives us boldness in the face of persecution. And it's the fact that God is sovereign, that we pray, knowing that he can change our hearts, he can change their hearts, he rules. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And so I think this is one of the most remarkable prayers in the Bible. There are lots of remarkable prayers, so I'm not going to try to rank it. But it's, it's incredible, right? It evidences such faith. 
the church's leaders have just been severely threatened by those who, the, the very same people who had just murdered Jesus a few weeks prior. You know, we know that Peter has a wife. How many of these brothers and sisters were married with kids? And yet in the face of persecution, they don't ask God for a change in circumstances. Isn't that incredible? They ask God for a change of heart. Say, God, give us the boldness, the courage. Our hearts are weak. We are prone to wander. We're, we're prone to be timid. Give us boldness, we pray. What an example of faith, of trust in the Lord and his providential rule, of, of valuing the things that are above, which are eternal, rather than the things that are seen, which are, are merely temporary. Of not fearing him who can kill the body, but of entrusting themselves to the sovereign Lord of all. Because for as big a deal as the religious leaders made of the, the church's preaching, you know, they thought it was a big deal. They thought it would undermine their religious authority. Well, we as the church know that something much greater is at stake. The church was so insistent on teaching and preaching and proclaiming the name of Jesus because it is through Jesus, through his name alone, that men can be saved. And so verse 31 concludes. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Brothers and sisters, prayer works. God loves to answer his children's cries, especially for help in sharing the gospel. In a culture that is increasingly hostile to the claims of Christ, may we also ask God for boldness. May we also be filled with his Holy Spirit, that we may speak in Jesus' name, that many might be saved. Let's go to the Lord now. Heavenly Father, we confess that in so many ways we are timid. Father, we confess that even this week we have been afraid to share the gospel with others. Father, we pray that you would grant us boldness. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray that we would speak and that verse 4 would come to true, would come true in this church that many who hear the word would be saved. Oh Lord, we know that we cannot do this on our own. We know that you are the one who grants faith and repentance. You are the one who grants boldness to our lips. And so we pray that you would use us. We pray that you'd use us to get the gospel from our lips to people's ears. We pray that you would get it from their ears to their hearts. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.